All right, so I'm going to jump right in because I'm sure you guys have a Christmas dinner to get to, even though it's not quite Christmas. Um, uh, one of the things I know about Christmas services is, um, first of all, they need to include at least one Christmas song. So I did that. And secondly, it needs to be a short sermon. I may do that. We'll see. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. It's not too long, I promise. <laughs> now, it's like I heard somebody say one time, it's like, it's not really bad if you don't suck. But if you suck, I mean, you know. Yeah, it's really, really long, so just try not to suck. So I'll try not to suck this morning. Um, so I want to talk about hope. Tis the season for, last week we said, tis the season for joy. And this week I want to talk about hope. And those are two things, obviously, that are pretty much Christmas themes. But I think, like, um, this morning I sang a song that was not technically, two songs, actually, the opening song and the ending song, that were not technically Christmas songs. But if you listen, those are really, really good Christmas songs. <laughs> So the one in the middle, you know, there's hope for everyone. I love that. It, part of it was it, it was new, but I just love the, the, the way it put it. And Karen said, you know, if we were going to really get there, we would rewrite the, the chorus, you know, um, that he's not coming, he has come. You know, that's a, obviously a pretty big deal. So um, when we talk about joy and hope in a season like COVID, it's, it sometimes falls on deaf ears. You're like, you know, I'll hope after the vaccine. So when, when I get the vaccine, then I'll, I'll feel like I can come alive again. So everybody's kind of waited waiting with bated breath, okay, is this, gonna, this, this thing going to work? And so our, you know, our vice president took it, and he didn't collapse on screen. So that's a good thing. I, I really like that. I'm, I'm feeling more confident, especially since he's a believer. So I feel more confident in the vaccine. But I was joking with somebody the other day. I said, you know, in this whole thing, you know, for the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years, we've been promised a zombie apocalypse, and we haven't gotten one yet. And I'm just saying, you know, this, <laughs> this virus is not proven. I mean, I'm just going to give it a few minutes. I'm, I don't know about you guys, but I'm a little skeptical. So I'm just going to wait a few minutes before I jump out there and get it when it's available. Just, you know, in case zombies start running around, I don't want to be one of them. So anyway, that has nothing to do with what I'm talking about this morning. Except for hope, right? Let's hope there's no zombie apocalypse. So we've, we've managed to get by so far without. So I want to talk about, first of all, the difference between biblical hope and wishful thinking. Um, when I first got saved, I would hear all of these, uh, these terms like joy and hope and some of these, you know, justice. I would hear all these words, but I would hear them from a filter that, w- that was completely unbiblical. I didn't know that, of course. I just, it's just kind of how it happened because I'd, I'd grown up in a culture where words had been defined by my culture and not anything else. And so when I, when I began to study the Bible, I recognized that there's some words that are defined differently. One, one example is love. Obviously, in the Greek original language in the New Testament, there's four, there's more, but there's four different main words for the word love. And in, in the English, the way we do it is through context. You know, we give it context, and you're supposed to figure it out kind of after the fact. But in the Greek, it's, it's very different than that. And so I recognize that there are certain times when the Bible says love, I had to go back and look, at, look it up and not assume that I knew what love it was talking about. You know, is this brotherly love? Is this... You know, is this sensual love? Is this, um, is this the love that God has for me that's, you know, agape or agape, however you want to say it? turns out that that's the unconditional love that God has for us. And that's a really, really big deal because if you get those things confused, it can really mess with you. And so hope is, is like that. Hope is defined differently in Scripture than we, awful, we often uh, think about it. And the, da- the, the danger is we tend to define things in our culture the way we see it uh, again, def- tend to define it in our culture the way we see it in the culture. And that's not how God does it. And so the difference between biblical hope and wishful thinking is basically hope, as it's used in the Bible, holds none of the uncertainty of wishful thinking. Because in, in, in hope here, it's like, boy, I hope it works out. There's this, there's this really big tinge of there's a really good chance it's not going to, right? Or, or at least some chance that it's not going to work out. And that's not how hope works in, in the Bible. 
Hope always works out in the Bible. That's the very definition of hope, and we're going to get to that in a second. Um, Biblical hope, the best way to put it, is it's a future certainty that you can expect and you can count on because it's based on something. And we're going to get into this. Um, It's not based, hope in the Bible is not based on your own strength or the strength of your wishing. If I hope hard enough, you ever hear that kind of come across in social media and culture? It's like if I pray hard enough. So in other words, the, the, you know, the answer to your prayer is going to come in how well you do it. So we talked a little bit about that and how sometimes our words, we, we think that we have to say the exact right words. We have to say it in Jesus' name, and it has to be in Jesus' name. If you leave out in Jesus' name, there's a good chance it's not going to happen, right? And so we, because of that, we, get, we buy into these ways of doing things. There's these two really interesting words in theology. One's called, um, uh, I, I lost it as soon as I said it. Um, Orthopraxy is the practice of orthodoxy, right? So it's easy. Orthodoxy is what you believe. Orthopraxy is what you practice about what you believe. And what we see is we see a lot of people who get orthodoxy. They believe a certain way. You know, I've been taught to believe this way, and so I do, which is not always true, actually. There's usually some, some stuff that's messed up in there that we're constantly adjusting and getting more in line with Scripture. But orthopraxy is how you, how you walk out what you believe. A friend of mine preached a message one time, and he said, he said it was called um, practical atheism. And, and he basically what he was getting at is many of us as Christians live a life as if God doesn't exist. Right? So our first inclination is not to go to the things of Scripture, not to go to our relationship with, our, with God, but our first inclination is if I'm in trouble and I need help, I call out to my dad for money, or I call out to my friend for a job, or I call out to, you know, whatever. Um, and that's the danger is we end up, if we're not careful, we end up putting all of this hope and putting our, the, the context of hope in our own strength. And that's just not a biblical way to do it. So hope doesn't exist alone. Because oftentimes what we do is we, we think, oh, I'm hoping and, and almost like I'm, I'm, uh, I'm believing in belief itself. Right? You see that's a, a common uh, misstep in Christianity. But hope's the same way. I'm, I'm hoping in hope. Like I'm just hopeful. That's usually a word that, that's the way we use it. I'm so hopeful. It's like, okay, that's wonderful, but what are you hoping in? Because what you hope in really, really matters, right? Because not everything will come through for you. And so that's kind of an understanding, a best way to understand hope is that, that it doesn't exist alone. Biblical hope doesn't exist alone. It has to have an object. There must be an object to your hope, and that matters. So one of the things we find do, we, we, that we do often is we, we get involved in what we call false hope. We, we put our hope and we we base our hope on something that's really, if, we, if we're really honest, it's a lie. So let me give you an example. Uh, it's, it's something temporary. Often it's ineffectual, of course. And by, de- by definition, it's wishful thinking. So I put my hope, for example, in wealth. I'm, I'm, I've made a lot of money, so I've got enough money. You know, in the Bible, he says, you know, I've, I've, I've got all these barns, and I'm going to tear down my barns and make bigger barns because look how much money I have. And Jesus is like, don't you know that your soul will be required of you? <laughs> He's like, yeah, but... You, did you not hear how much money I have? Oh, I heard. But that day is going to pass away. And uh, I remember one guy said this. He said, I've never seen um, a hearse pulling a U-Haul trailer. In other words, you can't take it with you, right? So, so there, if you hope in something that's not hopeful, it's not, it doesn't have the uh, substance to bring about you know, help, then you're hoping in something that's false. Another one is sensuality. You know, it's like I, it's all about how I feel. And, you know, the Bible calls it the God of our stomachs. You know, it's like any kind of desire that I have, whether it's eating or any other kind of desire, anything sensual of the senses, 
I give way to that. And somehow if I get, you know, if I, if I sleep with enough women, I'll be happy. You know, if I, if I get enough likes on Facebook, I'll be happy. If I, if, if I have the right car, if I move into the right neighborhood, it's always something. And what's, what you find is it's always fleeting. It never actually gives you what it promises you. That's how you know it's a false hope. And the, and the other thing is it's just absolutely temporary. So I mentioned that hope needs an object, and it doesn't exist alone. Um, we often try to, to make hope independent of everything else. For example, remember the song, Don't Worry, Be Happy? <laughs> right? It's like, it just sounds so easy when you say it that way. It's like, just don't worry, just be happy. Oh, my bad. That's totally how I messed up. You know, I'm so depressed and discouraged because I didn't know I could just be happy. It's like, you know, that's the sarcasm that kind of rises up inside of me. But we do the same thing when we say, um, oh, just have hope or be hopeful. You should be hopeful. It's like, I hear you, but what am I hoping into? And that's the, that's the thing that I think, again, kind of delineates us between false hope or worldly hope and biblical hope. So the, for the believer, the biblical hope is based on something that's irrevocable. That means it can't be taken back. So once it's issued, once it's out there, it can't be taken back. So the Apostle Peter writes, this is 1 Peter 1.13. It says, set your hope completely on the grace that will be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. So he's saying one of the things that you can place your hope in is grace. What is grace? Grace, we know this, is um, uh, it's, un, it, it's God's favor unconditionally. Right? It's, it's given to us without anything that we do in ourselves. So in other words, I can't, no matter, I can't be good enough for it. And once I realize that in the same way that I can't hope hard enough, I can actually place my hope in something. And, and the substance of what I place my hope in is the power of it, not that I'm, I'm the one hoping as hard as I can. Does that make sense? And so it's, there's a guarantee, like you see this in Revelation 21.5. It says, Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Right? So there's coming a day, he finishes out, he says, right for these words are true and they're faithful. So as, we, as believers, we have, we have hope in something. Um, you, can, you can readily see it, that it's, it's irrevocable, it's unchangeable, it's not going away, and, and it's something that you can trust. You can put your trust in it because it's true. He said, write, write these things for these things are true, right? And I know just because you say it, right, doesn't necessarily mean that it's true. And so a lot of people have that sense about religion. They'll say things like, you know, I'm just kind of an agnostic, right? Like, I'm, I hope there's something good out there. I hope there's a God. But think about that process. Like, first of all, there's, there's no such thing as an agnostic, right? Because an agnostic is, saying I'm an agnostic is a truth statement. It's saying, it's the same thing as saying there is a God. Atheism is also a truth statement. It's saying there is no God, right? Both of those are truth statements. So it's, you know, let's not kind of mince the words. And the agnostic kind of hangs out in the middle and says, hey, I'm just going to be passive, you know, and don't worry, be happy. I'm just not going to, I don't want to rile any feathers. I don't want to commit, you know, I just want to be kind of passive. So I hope there's a God, but I don't know that there is. And the question is, it's not whether you know there is, it's whether you can know there is a God. And it turns out there is evidence of a God. There is evidence that what Jesus did on the cross 2,000 years ago wasn't a fairy tale, it was a fable. It actually happened. There is plenty of evidence for God. I know that because I was very skeptical when I first came to, to Christ. I'm like, I'm not buying into this just because everybody's doing it. I don't care how many billions of people believe in Jesus. I'm not doing it because billions of people do it, right? Like my mama said, if all your friends jump off a cliff, <laughs> right? Anybody's mom tell them that? Just me? Okay, yeah. Maybe in the time. So there's this old hymn that kind of captures this. It says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. 
On Christ the solid, solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. And so it's, it's something that sinks into our heart, because all of us have heard that at, at some point. Even if we're not Christian, we've, we've heard that. And we recognize that our hope is settled in something. So as a believer, when you hope, there's some, again, there has to be an object to it. Here's a, 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 one way of, uh, of explaining it by way of a preacher. His name was James Smith. He was a preacher in the 1800s. And he wrote this. He said, it's an inheritance that is incorruptible. This is the hope we have in Christ. Revealed through the gospel is the way he put, way he put it. It's an inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, and that fades not away, which was reserved in heaven for us. Sounds like scripture, doesn't it? It is a house not made with human hands. It is a city which has foundations whose builder and maker is God. It is a state in which we shall enjoy a freedom from all evil and be put in possession of all real good, both physical and moral. It's a powerful thing to think about. The poor body will no more suffer from pain. <laughs> that makes no sense to our younger crowd. It's like, what do you, I don't understand. You're talking about injury? Like, no. <laughs> I'm talking about waking up and why is my shoulder hurting? That's what I'm talking about. We all kind of get that. So the body will no longer suffer from pain, but will be healthy, spiritual, powerful, and immortal. The soul will be no more tormented by sin nor harassed with doubts or fears, but will be wholly confident and happy forever. O glorious hope, prepared for us by our heavenly Father's love, procured for us by our beloved Savior's suffering and death, and revealed to us by the blessed Holy Spirit in God's holy book. It's neat. Hope needs an object. And here's another thing. Hope rests in something. It rests in who God is. So hope can, is settled. It, 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 it can find rest. It can rest in His, in his nature and His character. Um, I'm always amazed when people talk about God, like they, you, know, you talk about a friend that you have, and they had some kind of encounter with that friend, or they heard something about that friend that was completely untrue and unfounded because you know your friend, and you know they're not like that. And that happens all the time when I'm having a conversation with somebody about God. They make statements about God as if they've, you know, sat down with him for an hour or two, and they haven't. They might have been exposed to some of his followers, you know, and I think it was Gandhi who said, um, you're Christ I love, it's your Christ followers I'm not so happy about, I'm paraphrasing, <laughs> right? But that's because we're imperfect, of course, but when we have conversations about God, again, his nature and his character are irrefutable. And it doesn't take long to figure that out if you've been serving for a little while. The challenge is, I heard somebody say it this way, um, we're supposed to be skepti skeptical. Like God, there's something inside of us in a fallen and a broken world. That it's healthy skepticism is a good thing. Even as Christians, one of the things I, I was very challenged about when I became a believer is, um, you know, where did everybody's critical thinking go when they accepted Christ? What happened to their brains? They just chunk them out the window. I'm like, And don't get me wrong, I had to deal with some things that, my brain was saying, hey, I don't know if that's true. And I had to tell my brain, um, first of all, I'm feeling weird because I have a conversation with my brain, but I had to tell my brain, you're just going to have to trust me on this issue, right? Because you don't know everything, it turns out, right? Like even some of my memories have lied to me because it didn't happen the way I thought it did, right? <laughs> and we learned that. But, but the whole concept is God has a character and a nature that is, if you're not hyper-skeptical, then you find out that he's true. I read the book that helped me become a believer. It's called um, Evidence That Demands a, a Verdict by Josh McDowell. And he wrote the book with the intention of proving God wrong, right? And it, it did the opposite. It proved God right, and he had to admit that. And he said it was really funny because I didn't want to admit that because I didn't like some of the Christians on the campus that I knew. And it's just because some of them were immature and, again, not very critical thinkers. But I remember the, the phrase that he used. He said, 
the guy who challenged him to check out you know, the evidence said to him, if you'll put truth on the throne of your heart, Jesus will sit there because he really is truth. But don't put Jesus on there because you've probably got a fallible version of Jesus. Right? In other words, maybe you've got a Baptist Jesus or a Mormon Jesus or a Catholic Jesus or a cultural Jesus. He's definitely white, has a very long straight nose, and does not have curly hair, right? Because <laughs> the internet doesn't lie. So we, we find out that very quickly that what our perceptions are not necessarily true. And if we're hyper, um, if we're hyper skeptical, then this is what we do. We, we say, listen, I, I believe that you can give me $1,000, but unless you show me in the way that I want it, I will not believe that you're generous. So I put you through this test that is ridiculous and, 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 uh, and unhelpful. And we don't do that with anything else in our life, right? I come in and sit down on a chair, and quite frankly, most chairs, I just look at them and go, yeah, I think that'll probably hold me. But I don't force it to prove itself before I actually sit down on it because I've sat down on enough chairs and they haven't collapsed, right? So I'm skeptical if I see a chair that's a little wobbly, <laughs> right? Sit down in a restaurant and the chair kind of wobbles a little bit. I'm like, I'm going to change this one out for another one because I don't want to collapse in the middle of the meal. So that's skeptical. Hyper-skeptical is I'm not sitting on anything ever again until 100% of the time it always proves itself to be true. It's like, first of all, that, that's something that can't happen because that 100% is always going to be in the future. And we do that with God, and it's not helpful. So we, we malign his character, and we don't trust his character and his nature, not because his character and nature isn't true. It's because somewhere deep down inside, I don't like the implications of what will happen when I do discover that it's true. And some of that is, you know, again, in our fear, I have to give up lordship of my own life. And that is true. Right? That is very true. You do have to lay down your life. But what you get in exchange is so much more powerful. And that's the thing that I've discovered. The real believers have discovered this. I wouldn't trade what I have in Jesus for anything on this planet. Nothing. As much as I love my wife, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, trade, I wouldn't trade my love for Christ for her. Thankfully, he doesn't ask me to, <laughs> right, in the sense that it's a one-for-one. One. But the way I love my wife the most and the best is I love the God who loves her even more than I do. Does that make sense? So character and nature is important. So what God has said, and I want to read the scripture, and I'm going to wrap it up with this passage in Hebrews. It's Hebrews 6.16. It says, now when people take an oath, they call on someone greater than themselves to hold them to it. And without any question, that oath is binding. God also bound himself with an oath so that those who received the promise could be perfectly sure that he would never change his mind. So that hope is resting in something. So God has given both his promise and his oath. Two things. Two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have, died, who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. Listen to this. It says this hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. Jesus has already gone in there for us. He has become our eternal high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So I'm not going to go into do too much detail of this, but there's just a couple things about that passage. One hope is a refuge. The word refuge means shelter and protection from danger. I think we all probably know that. Shelter from distress or some enemy. And the picture that Scripture gives it is like a storm, or like a boat that's caught in a storm, and it's, it's being tossed about in every direction, and it's looking for, on the coast, it's looking for a safe harbor. And so you're, the hope, the picture is, that you're, the hope that God gives us is a refuge from the storm, from the storm of life, from the storms of fear, 
from the storm of death. I mean, the analogies just begin to, to go completely out there. Another one is like a, a man caught in the open in the midst of a violent storm, and he's looking for a cave that offers protection. The, the sense is we're caught out in the middle of something that leaves us hopeless. If I don't find a safe place, I will eventually die in this. And that's the sense we get in the world. And, you know, it's funny because I don't, I don't remember that until I became a, a, late in my teens. And I remember the revelation beginning to come on me that things are not actually going to be okay. I, and that is a really frightening place. And it left me feeling hopeless. Now, I disguised it. You know, you party your brains out. You know, you live like there is to, no tomorrow because in your head there's probably no tomorrow, right? So, so I get it and I get why we do that. But if you live enough life... If you're not careful, the circumstances will tell you something that is not true if you know who God is and know what he said. So hope is an anchor, it said, as well. And it keeps us from floating about. And there's a beautiful hymn that talks about this, my anchor is, is settled. It's caught on the rock inside the Holy of Holies. And that's the picture that, that, that where that hymn comes from, is that there's an anchor, your, your, your hope is an anchor. Again, because it's set, it's settled, it's resting in something. It's not hoping for the best, hoping things work out. All of those things are not really hope, biblically. They're wishful thinking. They're like, if I, if I pay my taxes, if I do everything right, if, you know, if, I, if I do everything right, it'll work out. And if you live long enough, you'll find out that that is not true in this broken world. You can do it all perfectly. And the brokenness of this world will find a way to touch your life. And Jesus comes and he says, even though all that's true, the enemy wants to steal, kill, and destroy. And you see that, if you, again, if you have any sense at all, you see that. But Jesus said, but this is how, and this is why I came. I came, not just to bring life, but so much life that there's more of it than you can even stand and you can give it away to others. It's a beautiful picture, right? And again, like we said last week, joy is not the same, same thing as happiness. I've seen people, and I've heard people talk about this recently. <clears throat> just on our trip, we went up to see my... Uh, uh, my brother and his, his little boys, and there was someone, I can't remember who it was, talking about hope, <clears throat> talking about this sense that I, I found my joy growing in the midst of all this brokenness, and I didn't think that was possible. It's an interesting scenario. Hope enters the veil, and I mentioned that. Um, what does that mean? You know, the Scripture says it this way. I'm going to just read the passage. This is in Matthew 27, 51. It says, Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split. So on that day, most of us know this story, but on, this, on that day, Jesus is hanging on the cross outside of Jerusalem. People are mocking him. Most people don't know this, but Jesus hung there. Uh, according to custom, Roman custom, he was naked. He was not clothed. And again, it goes back to we, we see pictures of him painted. And to, to cover Jesus' dignity, they painted him with something around his waist. And that's nice, right? And I, 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 I'm thankful, right? But it's not accurate. And it's helpful to know that. Why? Because there are a lot of things that we've done and that, that the culture has done, even church culture, has offered to us as hope that, that it's not really, it's, it's nice, but it's not accurate. So Jesus hung there naked on that cross. And the Bible says there was a moment where the sky grew dark and then the, something happened in the, mo- in the midst of this, the, the veil that was very, very thick, it was not something that could be torn with human hands, and that was kind of the point, was ripped from the top to bottom. It was very specific to say it that way. It, just, it wasn't just ripped, but from the top to the bottom. Why? What Jesus was saying was, 
hey, I went in there first. So the reason you have an anchor in there is because I took your anchor and I, I brought it in there with me and I anchored it to the Holy of Holies. It's settled in there because I went there first. And so the, the veil is torn from top to bottom signifying that, that God was coming into man. He was opening the way of the Holy of Holies, the holiest place, his presence, opening it up for us to come in there. And isn't that what the gospel story is all about? We call it the Christmas story, right? But it's only part of it. You know, the birth of Jesus is only part of the story. But, you know, it, it starts with a manger and sort of ends on a cross, although not really. <laughs> but it really has nothing to do with the manger or the cross. It has everything to do with the one who was in both, or on both, however you want to look at it. And so the picture of Jesus in a manger is this helpless baby who came into the world, but it turns out he was not helpless at all, right? And that what he came to do was to make a way for humanity because he took his life and he offered not just his death as a sacrifice, but he offered his whole life. What does that mean? He lived perfectly, perfectly. We know this. If you're a Christian, you know this. He lived a perfect life according to the law. What does that mean for you and I? That means that when he, his life was sacrificed, he was the perfect, unblemished lamb. And that sacrifice, and we know that that sacrifice was accepted, not in the temple on earth, but the temple in heaven. The Bible says his blood was sprinkled in the temple in heaven, right? On the mercy seat in the heavenly place. The, the one we have on the earth was a model of the one apparently that is in heaven in some sort of way. And his blood was offered, and the Bible says he was raised from the dead, and that signifies that his sacrifice was accepted. Now, what does that mean for you in hope? It means that it's not based on your strength any longer. It's not ba based on how well you can obey the law or do the right thing. Your hope is not in the strength of wishful thinking or what you could do, which turns out you can't anyway, which is the point of the law. It shows you that you are a sinner, you are broken, you are undone, and you are outside of the promise. But Jesus said, for those who will put him, their trust in me, those who will believe in me, they'll never die. And the picture on that day was, I've opened up this holy of holies. Because that was, that was if you th the best way to think of it is that is the, the curtain that opens to the other side. Right? That's death. That's eternity. That's where we're all going. Whether we believe we are, we're all acting like nobody's going to die. And everybody is. Right? And so you can put your hope in something that's been anchored because Jesus, according to Scripture, he went there already. So this is the last Scripture I want to read. 2 Corinthians 4.17. Our suffering is light and temporary, and it's producing for us an eternal glory that is greater than anything we can imagine. We don't look for things that can be seen, but for things that can't be seen. Things that can be seen are only temporary, but things that can't be seen last forever. We know that if the life we live here on earth is ever taken down like a tent, and it will be, right? We still have a building from God. It is an eternal house in heaven that isn't made by human hands, right? And so that pastor from the 1800s, was, he was speaking to that. We have a house, not this physical body, but an eternal body that is that something that Jesus did changed who we are. It changed our nature. We're not what we used to be. One guy said it this way, the only way to understand it is we're literally a new species. We look the same, but we're not the same. Our suffering is light and temporary, but it is still suffering. 
And so here's where hope comes in. And here's why hope is so powerful and why it's so necessary and why it's helpful to understand the biblical version of it rather than wishful thinking. Because everybody is hoping in something. Everybody is. If you, if you have no hope, you do not live very long. This is a medical fact. If you lose hope, don't care how healthy your body is, it begins to decay because there's something that happens in the psyche, in the soul, in the spirit, wherever all that stuff is, we don't understand it. If that, if hope is taken away, you won't last here. And so if you put your hope in something that's here, like he said, in something that can be seen, it's only temporary. So any hope you have in this world is only temporary if it's placed in something in this world. So the only way to have true biblical hope is to place your trust in something that is not temporary, that is not of this world, and that, of course, is Jesus. Andrew McLaren was a Scottish preacher born in February 1826. I have a lot of uh, books in my Bible library from him. He wrote a lot of sermons. He was a contemporary of C.H. Spurgeon. He was a pastor in Manchester, England for 45 years. He was well known for his expositions of Scripture. He, he said something that's really powerful, and it was very 1800s flowery. <laughs> so I, I, I put it in my own words. Hopefully it still comes through. But he was talking about how hope in Christ is like the rising sun. This is what he said. When the sun begins to rise over the horizon... The trees and all the objects between you, between you and that sun that's rising, I mean the sun that's rising above the horizon, is toned down into a uniform blackness, is the way he put it. He said, all of it begins to fade away as the sun begins to rise, and that's all that you see. He says, the light on the horizon causes everything else to dwindle in insignificance in comparison to the brightness of the sun. It's a picture he painted. His last sermon was given on November 21st, 1904, almost exactly 61 years after his very first sermon. 61 years this guy preached. He died on May 10th, 1910. His body was cremated and his ashes were buried under a cross he had placed on the family plot years before. The cross bore the words that he had chosen many years before for his own death. In Latin, because he read Latin, of course he did. <laughs> in Latin it read, In Christo, in pace, in spe. In Christ, in peace, in hope. If you're in Christ, you can have peace. You can have hope. And in all honesty, there is no other way. Hope was born 2,000 years ago in a manger. And about 33 years after that, hope was settled. My hope for you is that when you come to know him, if you don't know him, maybe people watching online, you don't know him, that you would come to trust in him fully because he is trustworthy, that you receive the joy, peace, and hope that transcends Christmas time, that when this season is over, that the novelty of hope tends to fade away and we get back to normal. And what God was intentioned all along was that hope was supposed to be normal, a real hope that brought life even in the darkest hour, even in brokenness, even in the death of a loved one. And what we find is this. In this, in this season of Christmas time, whatever you have, if you have hope in Him, it gets amplified. And there, if you have joy in Him, it's amplified. If you have put your trust in anything else, and this is, if you will, this is a litmus test for you. If you've 
place, even as a believer, if you find yourself taking your eyes off the sun that's rising over the horizon, right? And you begin to place it on the journey that's ahead of you, the trees and the objects that are right there. If you do that, then what happens is that also gets amplified. That sense of hopelessness, sense of fear, that sense of overwhelm, what am I going to do? All of that comes from having taken your eyes off of Jesus. Now, this isn't a Christmas story, but Peter is walking on the water. Just to say those words feels ridiculous if you've never seen God do something miraculous. I have, so it's just ridiculous for you, not for me. So I apologize that you haven't gotten there yet. (laughs) But I've seen things that make that very believable, easy to believe, actually. And the Bible says he took his eyes off Jesus and he sank in the storm. And so there's no better picture, I think, of what God has called us to in this hope than that. That in this world, there are storms raging. You're going to feel them. We we have felt it really bad in the last year, of course. Um, But even if we get a vaccine, don't fool yourself into that's going to answer your hope. It's not. It's not. The same challenges that were here before are going to be here after, right? We'll just find something else that's trying to kill us. Right? Because the enemy is, is the enemy of our soul. But if you've placed yourself and placed your trust and let your, your hope rest in an object, rest in something that is unchanging, that is irrevocable, that's never going to be taken away, that's given to you. So all of your hope is not something that you have to muster up. It's something that's been given to you as a gift. All you have to do is keep your eyes on him, place your hope in him, place your trust in him, and just like this man, on that day, they put that above his, his tombstone, right? In Christ, in hope, right? If you're in Christ, you are in hope, and you can't be taken out. Why don't you stand with me? I hope this Christmas holiday, um, you guys have had some good times. Um, my wife and I have some really amazing times, and we've had some challenges. Right now as a church, we have a lot of people who are sick, who are struggling with some challenging things, godly people who are doing it right, Um, amazing, amazing people who are doing everything right, and the enemy's still coming against them. And our prayer and our hope as we we speak into this is that we trust the Lord for healing. Jesus was all about that. And so if you're not into that, um, you need to maybe go back and read your Bible with me. I'll help you. We'll do it over coffee together, and I'll help you see. So he wants to heal, right? So if there's something in the way, it's not him. And so as a church, as a people, we're learning to put our hope in him and trust in him and coming back and saying, Lord, what's missing? What are, we, what are we missing that obviously is on this side that whatever we can do to bring people closer to seeing the, the power of God move in our midst, that's a passion that we have. And I believe that as we see more of that happen, more and more people are going are to come to Christ because it's not just an intellectual argument. There has to be something to rest your hope in. And so I just want to ask you guys, as we pray this morning, let's, let's trust as we go into this new year. Let's trust God for his promises to, to heal, to bring deliverance, to bring the power that, that would usher in and come and fight against the power of the enemies, enemy that we've seen so much this last year, that healing would become commonplace among us, that we would see the power of God and move in ways that we haven't seen, that whatever place of unbelief that's found its way into our church culture, I don't mean just um, DCF, but I mean church culture as a whole, that we would see that eradicated in our lifetime, that we would see people be healed as easily as people come to know Jesus. Because it's the same faith, it's the same power, 
right? That raised Christ from the dead. It's the same power that saves us, the same power that heals us. So I want to pray and just end this as we go into this season. Lord, we're trusting you for big things. Our hope is not in how hard we can pray or any of those things, but understanding and hearing from the Lord. Lord, if we're missing something, if something's not where it should be, help us to bring that into alignment, not just individually, but as a church culture. And let's go after something this new year. Let's go after seeing people come to know the joy that we know, come to know the hope that we know. Amen? So let's pray. So, Lord, we just come to you in Jesus' name. We pray, first of all, Lord, for those who are sick among us. And, Lord, we declare healing. God, your word says that you came and you healed everyone who was sick. Any person, Lord, who was brought before you, you healed them, Lord. If, it was, if you could do it, you did it. If you had the ability to touch them, um, even, they were healed. If they touched you, they were healed. Lord, the only place we see that not happening is a place full of unbelief. And so, Lord, we know that that's a, a hindrance that can get in the way of what you desire for our lives. And so, Lord, we lean in and we say, Lord, help our unbelief. As the man prayed for his son, Lord, help our unbelief. As we go into this year, God, we place our hope in one who is unchanging. Lord, one who, who the gift and the promise of life for us, Lord, is irrevocable. It can never be taken away. Thank you for grace. Thank you, Jesus, that you came not just to a manger, but to a cross. And you paid a price we couldn't pay, Lord, because you love us. You love us, and we just want to wallow in that love, Lord. We just want to relish that in our hearts and our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This morning as we're um, closing up, we just want to let you know that we would love to pray for you if you're in person, and if you would like to have prayer, just if you'll raise your hand when we end service. And for those of you who are watching online, you can um, contact us through our website, dothanchristianfellowship.com. I just want to close this out with this scripture because hope is in someone and um, our hope is anchored in Christ. And so I want to read this scripture. It's Romans 15, 13. It says, Now may God, the inspiration and fountain of hope, fill you to overflowing with uncontainable joy and perfect peace, as you trust in him. And may the power of the Holy Spirit continually surround your life with his superabundance until you radiate with hope. So, Father, we just thank you this morning. And, God, we declare we want to be a people that radiate hope to those around us, Lord. Thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit that lives and dwells in us. And, Lord, that it empowers us to be full of hope. And, Lord, we just say thank you for today, and we bless this holiday season, Lord, of families coming together, friends coming together, Lord, and, God, in celebrating the greatest gift that has ever been given to all of humanity in your son, Jesus. We thank you, Lord. Amen.